0: Hello everyone and welcome to the special edition of the Primate Guest named Conservation Voices. We are April 21st, 2015. My name is Cecile Sarabion and recently from March 24 to March 26, I went to my third student conference on conservation science. This was the 16th edition of this SCCS in Cambridge. We were about 180 persons. And what is particular about this conference is that it's only four students studying conservation science or interested in conservation science. And SCCS Cambridge, uh, later on started to replicate this model around the world. So we, you can listen to the podcast we made in Bangalore and in Brisbane for other SCCS. The four plenary speakers of this year's conference were Paul Ferraro, professor of economics at Georgia State University, whose work mainly focuses on designing and evaluating environmental policies. Patricia Marlouf, who is the founder and director of the Center for Environmental Sustainability at Cayetano Heredia University in Lima, Peru. Her work mainly focuses on the impact of fisheries on marine wildlife in coastal Peru. Tom McCarthy, who is the executive director of Panthera and who was interviewed during this podcast. And Julie Razafi Mananaka who is the director of Madagascarra Vuhakachi a conservation science and community participation NGO, which aims to protect endemic Malagasy species and their habitat. And the story about Julie is that 10 years ago, she attended the conference as a student. And today, she is a plenary speaker of the SCCS Cambridge. You see how such conference can inspire students. Regarding myself, besides conducting interviews for the primate cast, I was also presenting a poster on our conservation education project back in Iran, as I'm myself half Iranian. Konch is the name of our nature school, which aims to propose an alternative model of education in Iran, based on the children's experience with nature. Alternative schools about environmental education are kind of growing around the world. One example might be the Green School in Bali. If you didn't hear about it, you might check it out. And tomorrow, we are going to have a podcast with Nina Negi, who is a former student from the Green School in Bali, so you might check it out as well. And in the recent news of our team work in Iran, the advisor of the project, Dr. Hossein Vahabzadeh, recently gave a TED talk in Kish Island in southern Iran. And coming up soon in conservation science will be the 27th International Congress for Conservation Biology in August 2-6, 2015, in Montpellier, France before listening to our next Conservation Voices podcast. I hope you will all enjoy this one. The Primate cast presents... SCCS Cambridge 2015.
1: I'm Rosie Trevelyan, I'm one of the organisers of SCCS Cambridge. So I organise it with Andrew Bamford and Rhys Green. The idea of SCCS started because we wanted to provide a conference that was aimed at students, so... Students are at the beginning of their career in conservation. Rather than having an additional student session on a main conference, we thought we should run a conference entirely for students, and that's really the aim of SCCS. We wanted to give people a chance to give a talk, perhaps for the first time, but in an international setting. We have 90 posters at this conference, so if people don't give a talk, they get a chance to present their work in a poster. And. As you've seen, each day we have plenary speakers, so it's a chance for people to meet some of the great names in conservation who are doing wonderful work and they can meet them find, and, and get advice from them as well. It's not always, uh, people don't always have a chance to talk to these people in other conferences, there's so many people and uh, the plenary speakers that we get come not just to give their talks, but they really want to meet the students and talk to them. So we, we run it every year, so this year was our 15th conference, which uh, is pretty amazing. And the zoology department hosts it here, so we take over the lecture hall in the lab, as you've seen. And not only do we run the uh, the talks and the posters, but I, I don't know if you went to any of the workshops, we also have workshops. So the idea there is uh, it's a chance for people to have an opportunity to learn about, could be something brand new, we had conservation genetics or... We run interactive workshops where we talk about, for example, fundraising. How could you make your proposal better, and yeah. how do you go about that? So, I attended yours. Did so you? All right. Okay. So, so they're quite interactive, <laughs> and they're designed around your work. So the whole point—the whole point of the conference—it's about the students. It's for students. And the other thing is, of course, to bring people in from different countries. It's a great way to learn what people are doing elsewhere. I always think you—you you learn more about. The area you're working on, when you can see what other people are doing and what works, what doesn't work, um, and then. The, but the second thing is, it's multidisciplinary. I mean, the talks just ranged hugely from looking at socioeconomics, looking at modelling, looking at uh, more sort of natural history of fauna and flora to understand how we could conserve it. it it's a really good way to show how and why conservation needs to work across disciplines if we're going to really have the impact that we need to do urgently. How do you see the evolution of SCCS? One way it's evolved is it's sort of, it's cloned itself. There's now SCCS conferences in New York, in Brisbane, you went to that, the Brisbane one, in Beijing and Bangalore, which is a fantastic conference. Uh, That's, we really like the Bangalore conference because it's very much student run and they've been bringing in some great ideas to their conference. And then, of course, this year, for the first time, there's going to be one in Hungary. And the great thing about these other student conferences, we need them because there are so many students out there who'd love to come to these conferences. So we're really delighted that there's sister conferences around the world, and I think there's still room in a few places for more. The other way the conference has evolved is, well, it's evolved along with conservation. So we're seeing the talks now cover a much bigger range. I think there's there's definitely more multidisciplinary talks. But the other thing is they've just got better and better. I mean, the talks are absolutely fantastic, as are the posters. And we shouldn't forget posters because I think often to do a really good poster can be more difficult than doing a good talk because you only have that one piece of paper to present everything and you've got to attract people's attention when you're one of 90 posters in a room. And that room is full of people with food and quite often wine as well.
0: As a student, I agree with that. This year, you led two new initiatives for this conference. Can you tell us what is it about?
1: (laughs) Yes, well, having just been so proud of the fact that we bring people from all over the world, we have about 180 students here, obviously that's going to have some kind of footprint. So the new thing we did this year was we decided to go meet free entirely this is the first time we've done that. I mean, we're fairly meat-free anyway. You, I think you came to the, the wine reception last night where mm-hmm. we had food, which is all homemade by our wonderful volunteers. And it is absolutely delicious, I think yeah, we all agree. But we buy in sandwiches, for example, and we have our who's who in conservation with pizza. And so those are all meat-free. The other thing we've been doing since 2011 is offsetting our carbon. You heard my talk about that. Mm-hmm, so we've mm-hmm. um, helped basically reforest I think five hectares of spec boom in South Africa and we've just started a new three-year arrangement where we will be helping regenerate some more spec boom there and it's not just about the carbon it's also helping to restore wildlife habitat and it also provides jobs. We've committed to do that from now on every year.
2: I'm Tom McCarthy and I'm the Executive Director for the Snow Leopard Program at Panthera, a conservation NGO based in New York uh, that focuses on conservation of all cat species globally. And for the last 22 years I have been doing snow leopard research and conservation in Asia. And much of the work I do has been focused on trying to get communities in snow leopard habitat and and the people in those communities to better accept snow leopards as their neighbors through various innovative conservation programs.
0: So you have been invited to this conference to give a plenary talk and you were introducing the different projects you are working on with Panthera. But before going back to those, I read that you got first your PhD in Mongolia. And this was about the first study to put on satellite collars on snow leopards. Was it your introduction to Panthera?
2: It, it was actually my introduction to snow leopards. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was invited to come and lead the study by Dr. George Schaller. And we started that project in 1993 using standard VHF radio collars. So it was about, I was about the third person to use radio collars on snow leopards at the time. But it's very, very difficult to track VHF collars by hand in snow leopard habitat because it's so steep and and so high, and cats ranged over such a large area. So three years into the study, approximately um, satellite collars became available that would fit on an animal the size of a snow leopard. So we put the first one of those on in 1996 and uh, tracked it for about a year uh, via satellite before that project ended. Uh, But since then, the technology has advanced much more, and now we are using GPS callers that actually have an embedded GPS in the caller, take the location of the cat multiple times a day, and then uplink that information to us currently via satellite phone. So much more effective system, we get a lot more data that way. And so how and when did uh,
0: Panthera started?
2: Panthera didn't start until 2006, so I finished my PhD in 1999, and in the year 2000, I joined the Snow Leopard Trust, which is a Seattle, Washington-based conservation organization dedicated just to the snow leopard, and I worked for them for eight years, and as I said, Panthera started in 2006, but in 2008, they decided to add a snow leopard program to their other big cat programs, and I had the opportunity to joined them, which put me back with my friend and mentor, George Schaller, so that was exciting. And I've been with Panthera ever since.
0: Panthera has now monitoring and conservation projects uh, in lots of different countries in Asia and Middle East. So Could you give us um, some examples of successful stories?
2: Yeah, Panthera has a number of uh, different big cat programs, Mm -hmm. and two very large ones are Jaguar Conservation Program in Central and South America which focuses on maintaining the jaguar corridor, which is linking up all the the current population centers of jaguars throughout the range, because it's one of the only big cats that has a pretty continuous range all the way from northern Mexico or even southern United States now uh, all the way down to the tip of South America. So trying to keep all of those populations linked through Movement corridors is is our goal in that project, and we have the cooperation of all the countries along that corridor now. Other big programs we have are Tigers, of course, and our programs throughout Central and South Asia, and using the Tigers Forever initiative, which is essentially fortress conservation. We realize we don't have the ability to wait for such things as community-based conservation or other measures. We really need to lock up and protect those remaining core tiger populations. So that's a huge program for Panthera. We also have lion programs in Africa, Iranian cheetah programs. We've just added a forest leopard program in in Africa. But as I said, I lead the the snow leopard program, and uh, we're active now in several key countries. We have a large program for snow leopards in China, which of course has about 60% of snow leopard range. So it's a place if we're going to save snow leopards, we have to be active there. But we also work in India, Pakistan, Tajikistan. We just branched into Kyrgyzstan. And then we also support graduate programs in Nepal, and we have camera trapping programs that we're collaborating on in Mongolia and Uzbekistan. So out of the 12 snow leopard range states, we have some level of footprint or activity in eight of those now.
0: What about so the involvement of local communities into those conservation projects?
2: Well, certainly for snow leopards, where all my experience is, uh, we've approached this for a long time, even long before it came to Panthera, with the realization that saving snow leopards means meeting their needs and meeting the needs of the local people that, that share the mountains with them them. So that that's really been the impetus for a lot of our work or the or the methodology that we use for a lot of our work is to better understand the local communities, their needs, their aspirations, their the resources they have for meeting their own aspirations and then find a way to build a conservation program that is going to benefit the people and at the same time address some of the more critical conservation problems for snow leopards. And snow leopards are under a lot of different threats. One of those is simply killing in retribution for snow leopards eating livestock. Almost all of the people that live in snow leopard habitat are herding families and often very poor. When snow leopards eat livestock, it's not hard to understand why they want to kill the snow leopard in retaliation. Another big problem is loss of natural prey. And snow leopards normally eat big wild mountain goats and mountain sheep, and their numbers are declining in part because of competition with livestock. There's more livestock going into the mountains, so less for the native species to eat. They're also hunted illegally for subsistence food for people in the mountains, as well as legally, but often poorly managed trophy hunting, unsustainable trophy hunting in many cases. Two other countries that we're really focusing on are Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan because that is where a lot of the trophy hunting that has been done in the past has not been as well managed as it could have been. Local people saw no benefit from it, so now we have proposed putting community managed trophy hunting where the fees that are paid by foreigners to come in and shoot the big sheep and goats, much of that will now go to communities, and they will see a benefit. So once they see a benefit from saving big wild ungulates, which are snow leopard food, then our cats will have more to eat. So the, it's just this thought process that you do with the community to find out, well, what are your needs, how, how can we help those, and in exchange, get them to tolerate snow leopards or not to hunt snow leopard food animals, things like that. So it's a it's a complex, long process we go through, but it's working, and in those key countries, we're, we're, we're growing our programs.
3: My name is Alison Stocks and I am a master's student at Project Seahorse, which is in the fishery center at the University of British Columbia.
0: What did you present during this conference, you had a talk yesterday.
3: I presented on my research which is on seahorse fisheries in southern Vietnam and uh, how those fisheries operate, so who fishes seahorses, how many seahorses they fish, and how we're working with uh, Vietnamese stakeholders to try and make those fisheries sustainable.
0: So how did you do that?
3: My research involved catch-landing surveys, so basically I went to different ports around the island on a daily basis and talked to fishers about where they fished, what gear type they used, how deep they were fishing, how long they fished, and then as well investigating their actual catch. So. They have everything from live seahorses, which are kept in aerated tanks, which are kind of hard to count and measure, all the way through to dead, dry seahorses. So I was looking at different species, their sizes, pregnancy stage, uh, and that sort of thing.
0: What were the main outcomes of this study?
3: Uh, So basically what I found was, it's actually a really unique area where people actually target seahorses. Most of the world, seahorses are caught as bycatch, so in a trawl net, which is usually aiming for things like shrimp or bigger fish, they can incidentally capture one or two seahorses. Those still usually end up in trade, but it's sort of a, an accumulation of many small catches leading to millions of seahorses being caught and traded each year. But on my island, there are actually people that are uh, very skilled at catching seahorses, and they make their entire income from catching those seahorses. But despite the fact that there's only a few of those boats compared to sort of the generalist fishers, they catch way more seahorses. So it amounts to about 200,000 seahorses being caught off of the island every year, the majority of which are are caught by these target fishers. What are the main use of those seahorses? The seahorses are used in traditional Chinese medicine. They're caught across Southeast Asia and most of them are then shipped to Hong Kong. So they're used for fertility, um, child growth, all sorts of different ailments but sea are also protected under CITES so in order for countries to be able to export or import the sea urses, they need to demonstrate that they've been caught sustainably so that's got sort of a tricky situation in Vietnam they don't really have a lot of information on their sea fisheries or sea horse biology which meant that they weren't able to comply with the CITES requirements and this led to a suspension of their exports of one sea species But despite this, seahorse fisheries still occur in in Vietnam because they're used domestically. So it's sort of another form of traditional medicine. They're put in alcohol and the seahorse wine is considered to cure kidney pain, back pain, and then as well as used as an aphrodisiac for men. There is a possibility of continuing the research. So what we're hoping to do is build a management plan for Vietnam. So this not only combines my research, which sort of focused on the fisheries and biology, but looking at spatial distribution of seahorses, a trade survey, so the entire country, to try and sort of bring this all together and and find out how to make this sustainable. Because as much as we care about those seahorses and, and maintaining their populations, we also want to make sure that the fishers and the people that rely on them can also continue to do so and maintain those livelihoods.
0: So practically, how do you see those conservation applications?
3: I think realistically, there's a few management options that would work. One would be creating a minimum size limit, so ensuring that the seahorses that are caught are big enough so that they've reproduced already. And as well, we could look at sort of things like uh, catch limits or limiting the number of vessels that are permitted or creating sort of a seasonal sea horse fishing time and what's great is that uh, we have a lot of Vietnamese stakeholders on board from government, academia, you know marine protected area staff that are really keen to sort of see this project go ahead so I have a lot of hope that it is realistic that we could make sea fisheries sustainable in Vietnam. Great, good luck with that. <laughs> so it's your first SCCS? Um, yes, this yeah. is my first conference. How do you like
0: the conference so far?
3: It's great, it's so inspiring. I think the best part about it is, is feeling overwhelmed by conservation. I feel like so often as a conservationist you feel like you're screaming at the top of your lungs in an empty room you know but to feel surrounded by so many impassioned inspiring individuals doing great conservation work it's it's been phenomenal
4: my name is Elham Nurani. I'm from Iran I'm currently a PhD student in Japan working on bird migration
0: which university? university? So Elham, why did you come here with CCS Combridge?
4: I was always very interested in conservation. So back when I lived in Iran and I was doing my master's degree, I worked on conservation of waterfowl in Iran. And what I'm presenting here at this conference is a part of my master's thesis about identifying the threats to each and every waterfowl species that we have in our country.
0: How did you conduct your research?
4: Because these species are not very well understood in Iran and not many researches have been done. I needed to consult some experts and asked them about the threat factors that exist. So what I did was I designed a questionnaire and I gave that to the experts in the field of ornithology and especially those who work on waterfowl and also some rangers, work, people who worked at the Department of Environment. And I asked them to identify and score the threat factors that are affecting each species of waterfowl in the country. The main threat affecting all of the species that I was studying is hunting, which is a very big problem especially north of Iran. And the second most important problem was um, habitat loss due to dam construction and water management practices, which leads to wetlands drying up. And wetlands are the most important habitat of waterfowl, so that affects the populations of waterfowl in Iran negatively.
0: Which kind of conservation application should be
4: taken? I use these threat factors and uh, I use them to Determine the threat status of each species according to the IUCN categories and criteria. So now uh, we have the uh, red list categories, national red list categories for each waterfowl species in Iran, and that can be very helpful for conservation prioritization. And also, these results can help the NGOs to focus their research work on focusing on the most important threat factors and the most problematic, uh, the species that are facing the most problems
0: now you're conducting your PhD uh, in Japan. And uh, is it yeah, it's a different project? It's or
4: a totally different okay. project, yeah.
0: What do you think of the overall conference?
4: Uh, the conference was very interesting, very inspiring. When you see that some countries that are in much worse situation than Iran are doing some great mm-hmm. advancements and conservation, then you kind of get inspired and you want to go ahead and do something big. So yeah, I like the conference a lot. Do you
0: think of going back to Iran after and pursue some conservation work?
4: Yeah, I really want to. (laughs)
5: My name is Jeremy Cusack and I'm a third year PhD student at the University of Oxford and the Zoological Society London. Jeremy, you just won the first prize for the best talk of the conference. So, What was your talk about? My talk was about how to place camera traps when you're surveying entire mammal communities. So currently a lot of studies use trail-based survey designs where they go and put their cameras just on trails but this is only sampling a relatively small number of features in the landscape. The alternative is to place place cameras randomly, so not just on trails but on other features, and in this way you might hope to get species that don't use trails, you may get species in different numbers, get different capture rates, and so the the picture of the community changes.
0: Okay, so this was for your PhD dissertation. What did you
5: find out? So my my study was based in the Raha National Park in Tanzania. It's a very interesting environment because it's very seasonal. So you have a very clear dry season, a very clear wet season. During the wet season, the vegetation becomes much more dense and so animals, uh, animal movement is more confined to trails. The choice of a trail based strategy or a random strategy is influenced by seasons as well. In the dry season it doesn't really make much difference because animals use the whole landscape on and off trails. In the wet season it's much more important because animal movement is mainly confined to trails.
0: Did you get already any feedback from your research or applications? Of- What's your fund though?
5: So this is actually the first study to test um, this, uh, these placements in a savanna landscape. There have been other studies conducted in tropical rainforests, not on such a big scale, and that's why I'd quite like to, to see this design applied to different uh, ecosystems such as tropical rainforests or temperate forests. I'm not saying that projects should use necessarily one random placements, completely random placements or trail-based placements. That they need, just need to think a bit more about the context and what their objectives are and whether they are right from the design stage, whether they are violating any you know any assumptions or making some critical design errors that's, that can't necessarily be very easily remedi- remediated afterwards. So what's next for you now? Well, I've just finished my fieldwork uh, in Tanzania and now I'm back in the UK to write up and do some more analysis. In general, I'm looking at whether the mammal communities change across different human land uses in Tanzania, so I'm looking, really looking forward to, to finding out some more.
0: So was it your first SCCS?
5: Uh, it wasn't actually. I came to SCCS about three years ago after my master's in conservation science and then I came to SCS. I didn't present a talk for a poster mm-hmm. so I'm quite pleased that I did decide okay, so to do that this time yeah. Great start. Yeah, thanks.
0: <laughs> so how did you like the conference?
5: It's great because it's all students so there's not that fear of talking to someone who's who's you no know, much more experienced or you know big professors or something. We're all sort of equal here. We can all exchange ideas, help each other. That's the great thing, I think, about this conference. And of course, you have a few plenary speakers who are always very inspiring. The workshops are very useful because they're essential things that conservationists need to know. And it's just a very good time.
6: My name is Roda Kachali. I come from Zambia. I live in the northeastern Zambia, in a district called Rupika. And I work for the Zambia Wildlife Authority and we work with the Frankfurt Zoological Society and the CREATE project in those areas to uh, do conservation of various species and also to carry out scientific research. My talk is basically about edible caterpillars and the, how it's linked to forest conservation and uh, how local people have been managing the forest and the edible caterpillars in order to make a livelihood, to provide protein for their families and how that is changing. For many Uh, years, the visa people of uh, Northern Zambia have collected non-timber forest products, not just edible caterpillars. They also collect mushrooms, they also collect fruits from the forest, they collect edible orchids as well from the forest and various other things. They've got certain forest areas which they've set aside for religious purposes. Uh, Those issues, in my view, are sort of the ideal forest management, when you're looking at community management of natural resources. And in many ways now we're trying to go back to that. So what I'm trying to look at is how these systems work, how they're changing, and how we can reinforce those systems so that they work even better than they were before. That's basically the premise of my presentation. And what I've found is, in many cases, these institutions are still working to some extent, but they have been interfered by many other issues. Uh, Before, you only had the traditional institutions. Now you have sort of governments, you know, at national level, which have national agendas. And so you find there's agricultural policy, there's policies for other resources. And these may be detrimental to natural resources, but only if we don't think about it, only if we don't see where we are providing what I think of as perverse incentives, you know, Mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. one hand over the other. You are incentivizing, say, one land use over the other, we need to think about a holistic picture when we're making policy. I'll be able to inform policy about, look, because we are saying this to the people, mm-hmm. this is the information that we're giving to the people, and because of what we're telling them in terms of price and economy and all these other things for other products, they are not looking after the natural resource. I don't want to call it corruption, but they, mm-hmm. you know, they can... Uh, get more money from, say, maybe maize or other products, Uh, there's nothing wrong with that in itself, but to say, look, okay, you can have a field, but let's farm it in such a way that, you know, it conserves nature, instead of uh, just let's farm. So that's, for me, I think that's the message of my presentation, at least to the policy makers in my country. What would be the next steps? Of I think this project? for me, it's really to look deeper at what roles uh, these, what these various stakeholders are playing in these governance issues. I think I wouldn't say I fully understood that, and what roles the benefits that people get from various things are impacting, how it's impacting their behavior. So mm-hmm. I might be wrong to say that maybe someone is making more from maize, they might be making more from caterpillars, but still you know they are doing something that's unsustainable is it that they just don't know or is it a case of maybe we haven't we've been just telling them environment is good environment is good but we haven't really heard what they want so they might genuinely want just agriculture so to Come up with how can we balance those kind of issues because people have different aspirations, people have different backgrounds, people have different places where they're coming from, and sort of respect their journeys while at the same time trying to influence them to do something more sustainable for not just themselves but their children and their children's children, and for their own you know for the society as a whole at the end at the end of the day. So also another thing about caterpillars is essentially they can be a sustainable crop. It can be a sustainable source of protein. It can be a source of protein that, you know, doesn't increase greenhouse gas emissions, especially if you're breeding early.
0: Caterpillar breeding.
6: Caterpillar breeding, maybe. You never know. Although I'm not sure how successful that has been. But I know that I think in Southeast Asia, they build, breed silkworms, which is the same family. So uh, that's a possibility.
7: My name is Julia Quiroga, I come from Bolivia, but right now I'm doing my Masters in Conservation and Rural Development at the University of Kent with the DICE Institute and I'm at the SCCS in Cambridge presenting a poster on the assessment of the cultural use of the hairy Armadillo during Carnival celebrations in Bolivia.
0: Very interesting poster talk about the implication of culture and traditions into conservation.
7: This species of armadillo is very loved in this area in Bolivia. People feel identified, they have an emotional attachment with this specific species. It was chosen to be used as part of a custom of two dance crews during the carnival. But the harvest is not sustainable. So, the first stage of my project, that is what my poster is about, was a bit to try to quantify how many people are using this armadillo, how many of those were newly harvested that year, try to find some information about what these people feel about the species. And as a byproduct, I got some information about it, some possible illegal traffic chain, uh, not only at the national, but at international level of the species going
0: back to the use during yeah. the carnival so what do the people do with the armadillos
7: they use it as a music box that is part of the costume and uh, basically makes a sound that is special for this type of dance and uh, the image of the armadillo represents the dance group but it's also this music box so uh, the dancers that have this music box, they dress it as if were themselves, they put them names, they take it to the church to get blessed. So they even create like a, an emotional relationship with their animal. But sometimes the music box gets old, it loses the sound or it gets broke or something. So they change it. Oh, there are new dancers, they don't have one. Mm-hmm. So they buy a new one. So that is the problem when the harvest is not sustainable.
0: What did you find out more specifically? The
7: main outcome is the first Numbers are shocking. Between 150 and 200 individuals are harvested each year only for this use and only for this celebration. People love it, as I said. I think that I end up with more questions rather than answers. The next step will be to try to find out how willing are people to get involved into a conservation initiative for the animal and how willing are they to sacrifice the use of the animal and for which type of product maybe. be. Another species, or maybe using a better presented alternative that is made like uh, with sustainable materials, or maybe they want to pay more so that money can be part of a conservation initiative of habitat restoration or a breeding program or something. But we want to, I want to explore first what they would like to be involved in, and then to give some possible policies, recommendations for Mm -hmm. the future.
0: Do those people begin to be aware through your research, for example, that the use of the armadillos is not sustainable?
7: They know that it's in danger, but they were never given another option that will be traditionally friendly. So I think that the main point right now is to find a traditionally culturally friendly option that will be sustainable and also to give them like credit because they hate the conservationists right now because the approach was always to ban the product or to call them murderers. But it's not, like, it's part of the culture, so there is no respect from both sides. So I think it's time to work together, to look for a solution to the problem because they are not willing to lose the species. They are not willing to accept the idea that there will be no more armadillo in the area. My name is
8: Justine Alexander. I am French-British and I did a presentation called The Big Bad Lynx and the Innocent Snow Leopard. My talk focused on snow leopards, uh, conservation in China, in Gansu province, and I compared, well, it had two goals. First, looking at perceived rates of depredation, by snow leopards and other carnivores and also looking at uh, attitudes towards these carnivores using a specific method. It was conducted with questionnaire surveys of households and also of herding communities around an area where we knew there were snow leopards and that there were other carnivores such as lynx, bears, wolves. and red foxes as well. We asked herders to report their livestock losses in the last 12 months and to what species had been killed. And then they reported that most of their livestock had actually been killed by other sources, not by carnivores. So things like disasters, avalanches, too much snow, and also disease. And 29% was lost to carnivores. And of these carnivores, mostly it was the lynx and snow leopards were only responsible for 2%, so a very low percentage. And this, compared to other sites around the snow leopard range, this is actually quite small, even though that Reported depredation rate is known to vary across their range. This is quite small compared to other areas. And when we looked at attitudes, community herders, towards the lynx, they had kind of negative attitudes in terms of conserving the lynx. They did not want to conserve the lynx, and they considered them negative towards livestock while they were not fearful of the species. While it came to snow leopards, they also considered them negative to livestock, but actually had positive mostly positive attitudes to conserving them, which was surprising. But however, we must realize that we were looking at perceived depredation rates. So the story might not be so much like the lynx with this really bad carnivore and the snow leopard This really like, you know, just, you know, going out its own business around this livestock. That's not, actually might not be the case. We were looking at reported rates of mm-hmm. depredation and attitudes. So, I mean, there's a lot of bias. Like it's hard to know if the herders actually knew what killed their livestock livestock. They uh, misreported how many had died due to recall bias and other things. Also uh, herders reported seeing lynx much more around their areas, so Mm -hmm. they're likely to report that their livestock died due to lynx instead of snow leopard. So there were a few biases, but still, I mean, we wanted to highlight that it's important to know uh, the attitudes and what people perceive in the area in order for conservation action, you know, because in the end it will depend on getting their support mm-hmm. and involvement. These conservation actions might be things like compensation schemes that address all of the carnivores or maybe uh, addressing herding policies so that less livestock is lost to carnivores, maybe like protection or or um, keeping the livestock in corrals in different areas, not in uh, lynx habitat, and that's something they do in Europe. They, they bring the corrals away from like, more shrubby areas. They know there are lynx and then that reduces livestock losses due to lynx, if lynx is really the cause. Is there any ecotourism in the region? No, real ecotourism right now. They
0: don't see those species as a valuable species? No, not
8: necessarily. Livestock herding is the main livelihood in the area, and the main source of income at the moment. What are you planning to do now? Uh, Well, I'm actually just finishing my PhD, so I'm at the end. So this was only actually a small part a wider study, which did more ecological um, surveys. Uh, We were assessing density of snow leopards in the area, um, looking at other uh, threats such as mining, such as livestock grazing policies, and also looking at the status of other carnivores in the area. So it kind of was the social side of a wider project that was more ecologically based in yeah. the nature reserve. So hopefully, we're, I mean, we're going back, I'm going back to the nature reserve to report all the findings, talk to the nature reserve, um, get them more involved and uh, also these findings will go directly to the Chinese government who we work with, the State Forestry Administration and see what happens.
7: listening to the Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward news podcasts. And follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash The and on Twitter at The Primate Cast.